but I am curious, what's the story with Kermit back there on the wall? Um, I actually made that myself. It's one of the yarn loop. Um, oh, it is. Yep. And okay. I have a love for frogs. I used to have a frog collection with over a thousand different pieces within it when I was younger. It's, really? It's, yes. I inherited it from my aunt and um, no longer do I have the full collection, but I still have some of the remnants. Okay. And what, what, how did that come about? Did you just naturally gravitate towards liking frogs? Well, my aunt passed away when I was young. And so she was the frog collector in the family. And I always, green was always my favorite color. And so I was just like, oh, I'll take on this collection. Um, and then it just grew um, exponentially and it got to be way too much. But yes. Oh, I see. Oh, that's cool. Very cool. Well, you still like green? You like plants? And, yes, I yeah. do. Yeah. 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 It was an early indication. It's my future career. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you're if you're joining us, you're on the Ag Show podcast. This is the place to be. And and again, joining me today is my good friend, Dr. Wendy Zellner. Welcome, Wendy. Good to see you again. Always good to see you. Good to see you too, Johan. Thank you for having me tonight. Today. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I always I always enjoy our conversations, and everybody that that uh, that I talk to just uh they love learning about silicon and you and i we always have a good time chatting about it and i know we've discussed it on many occasions some recorded some not um gosh how long have we known each other i i'm i'm thinking almost 10 years but it might not it might be more like eight but it's pretty close it's pretty close to 10 yes i can't remember if it was 2014 in columbus i think so about then, yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. The other day. I was, I was like, that was. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's for, for those that don't know you, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just share a little bit about your background and and what who you are and what you do. Okay, um, I'm Wendy Zellner. I am from Northwest Ohio, born and raised. Um, my background is in cellular and molecular biology. Um, I always had a love for science, and my parents um, both thought that I would become a doctor, um, and I did, but I became a doctor looking at plants and plant diseases versus human diseases, um, which I absolutely love. Um, so uh, I really got started as a graduate student looking into nutrition and disease, um, where I had an opportunity um, to work. We had funding from USDA. Um, to look at silicon and boron. And really that's when my passion for silicon came because we found a lot of what we were seeing as we were beginning the research contradicted what was being published in the literature. And so um, from then I went on to work with USDA for a four-year postdoc, went back to the university, um, and now I am embarking on um, an independent kind of an education outreach, consulting and research um, opportunity um, where I'm just working with growers, with industry leaders, um, and uh, very heavily with uh, manufacturers and distributors in the silicon egg sector um, to really understand and help um, elevate silicon to being recognized as um, a beneficial and an essential nutrient for plant health here in the U.S. Very cool. You, you touched upon something that I'll expand upon real quick. You mentioned silicon and boron what's the connection between those two um well other than we're still learning a lot about them they go to similar areas within the plant um, we know that they're within the cell wall um, important for floral development and other different things they have similar um, characteristics elementally wise so reaction wise you can think of them um, but that's kind of where they um, end their way and they do have uh, different transport mechanisms, um, different um, responses within the plant. Boron is uh, probably need, is used at a much, much lower level um, than silicon. With boron, if you put too much into the system, you can get boron toxicity. So the plant doesn't regulate it as well as it does with silicon. Whereas silicon, you can't put too much in. And so silicon is probably doing something that's very, very fundamental, but is heavily regulated by the plant. So they're, they have a lot of similarities, but uh, definitely very, very different nutrients there. And there was just something about silicon that really 
captured your interest probably because there wasn't a lot of research at limited research limited knowledge very novel at the time was there anything else that just i mean what was it about silicon like, wow okay yeah, i want to well, focus on this yep we were actually working with um the lower foliar accumulators so not the hyper accumulators like the rice and the grain species um, but we were looking at Arabidopsis to start out with. And Arabidopsis only takes up about a thousand parts per million silicon compared to, so that's a 0.1% compared to your rice and your grains, which is at anywhere from one to 10% um, SI in the leaves. And we were seeing beneficial responses. And a lot of the literature um, at that time was saying that dicots like Arabidopsis and like a lot of the other plants didn't really need silicon and they excluded it not like the grains and so there wasn't really a need to look into these plant species when we thought about silicon nutrition and that is completely opposite of what we were finding um, specifically looking at nutrition and viral infections at that time but then we expanded into bacterial um, infections um, and there's a lot of evidence that's been published on fungal infections as well. So um, from a biotic and an abiotic stance, you know, we, we were seeing very similar responses in these dicot species. And that's really where um, just my passion to understand why and to look into that, you know, that's where my inquisitive nature kind of took me. Gotcha. You, you start, you touched upon accumulators and I, I had a convert, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and someone involved in the conversation was asking about silicon and is it necessary and the person sharing the story with me said you know, they started going on about accumulators non-accumulators mid-accumulators and that you know depending on what your crop you're dealing with you don't need to add silicon because it's not an accumulator etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think you know that used to be what everyone thought right that's not the case anymore so for example it, it expand upon that because I think you understand what I'm saying and there might be some misunderstanding of the relevance and importance of silicon in plants strictly based on maybe how much you find in the tissue if you do a tissue sample. Correct. And and you're absolutely correct. Um, we really didn't understand silica and we really don't to um, the degree that we understand other nutrients. But at the time when they came up with those designations, this is when they had first tried to describe what a plant nutrient was. And so silicon was kind of just this oddball nutrient um, that was out there. And so they were calling the accumulators plants that took up 1% or higher. Um, so this would be in the range of nitrogen, carbon, oxygen level of nutrients. Um, and those that accumulated lower they were saying were non-accumulators um, just simply because they didn't accumulate as much as the grass species. Um, these studies were done in the 1800s and early 1900s um, where they had a really small subset of different plant species. So it was a biased view um, on how silicon was distributed throughout um, angiosperms. And when we started collecting more data, what we're starting to see if we look at silicon concentrations in plants across all plant species, so our dicots and our monocots, most of the plants take up silicon to the same level as the macronutrients. So we're talking similar to sulfur, magnesium, calcium. Um, and then we have those that hyperaccumulate that are taking up as much as nitrogen and some dicots, especially some of the floriculture species, will even have levels similar to the carbon. So they're taking up really, really high amounts. Um, but then the plants that I was studying, that they were talking as low accumulator species, when we look at their nutrient concentration, they're still about 500 to 900 parts per million silicon in the leaves. This is higher than iron and manganese. So they're still accumulating and they're accumulating at a higher concentration than what we kind of think of our micronutrients. Um, so they are kind of in that sweet spot between a micro and a macronutrients in those what used to be called lower accumulators. So that's really what we're trying to educate with and what I've really been pushing for the last few years is getting rid of the high and the low or intermediate excluder nomenclature and start talking about silicon in the concentration and in the context as a plant nutrient. So when we think of our um, different species, our cucurbits are going to be 
uh, macro accumulators taking up a thousand to five thousand parts per million. And most of the dicots actually, and most of the angiosperms fall within that one to five thousand parts per million. You do get a few that hyperaccumulate that are going to take up higher amounts. And like I said, you do have some of them that take up those lower amounts. But when we look at the beneficial response across the board, whether they're taking up 100 parts per million or 10,000 or 100,000 parts per million, they all, when they're deprived of silicon and it's given back to them, show that beneficial response. So that's why I do say all plants are silicon accumulators. You just need to be aware of how much silicon is lacking and how much silicon they need to make sure that they are meeting their, their um, requirement for growth. Okay. So let's say we're in, we're in soil and you, you have crop rotations, et cetera. It sounds to me, though, unless you're cycling uh, plant biomass into the soil or adding silicon, it sounds like maybe a lot of systems are silicon deficient, right? Are we are, are farmers unknowingly mining silicon out of their soils and those systems are essentially deficient of silicon? So... Um a lot of work, Brenda Tabana at LSU has been looking to try and come up with how we can detect silicon deficient soils. Um, so obviously the parent material that's present within the soil, soil types, um, all those are going to play a factor into the silicon availability. Um, so silicon is the second most abundant element in the soil or in our lithosphere. Um, it needs though to be broken down into silicic acid, which is the available form. And um, the concentration that's actually in the soil solution of that is quite low. So when we start putting some of these components back to the soil, even if it has a high um, amount of silicon to start with, they're still seeing beneficial responses, especially when we get into um, the grains and some of those hyper accumulating species. And it's because they really do have a strong draw out of that system. Um, so in the soil um, profile, it it's still really, really, it's a very complex story. Um, and we're still learning about uh, how it works and how it becomes available. But you can think of it just like a highly weathered soil. We're putting nutrients back into the soil to replenish what we're pulling out. And with the heavy um, agriculture and the heavy growing and the crop rotations that we've been doing, also with the heavy feeding of other fertilizer, we don't have as much microbial action taking place within the rhizosphere. And so that is limiting likely the amount of available silicon that's being there. And so, yes, when we get into these cropping systems where we haven't been putting the plant residue back um, or other forms of silicon that we might not even realize that we're doing, we really do see deficient um, soils throughout the U.S. And they are seeing quite um, wonderful improvements to yield and crop quality and stress management um, when they start using these types of fertilizers in a soil type production. Okay. So, and I'm going to keep, I'm going to kind of keep with this flow if we start with the soil. So silicon is relatively, its solubility is low. Um, natural weathering, of course, uh, throughout some of the research I've done over the past couple of years, I've come across, you know, many solubilizing beneficial microbes. Uh, I'm sure they, they, they play a part in this as, in, as well, correct? Correct. Yes. Of making it in, making silicon in an available form. Cause here, I know you deal with this too. And I, I think technically we might be, you know, splitting hairs, but it's really important to understand the nomenclature. I hear a lot of people will say silica, which is technically silicon dioxide, SiO2. That's not what plants that are, are taking up. You've mentioned the available form is monosilicic acid. So how do we go from in the soil silica? And I also want to touch on how growers can determine how much they have in their soil to begin with. Um, so help kind of walk through that. It's, it's solubility is low. How does it go from unavailable to available to then taking up by the plant and how to have um, farmers determine a base level? So even silica will break down um, and dissolve into the water. So a lot of the silicon that's in a soil profile is um, 
can be bound in an amorphous form. So this, instead of being the highly crystalline, like a quartz or, you know, look, thinking of a diamond where it's that clear and really nice lattice structure, um, these more amorphous forms um, are just easier, or even um, you can think of it almost like a gel in some of the material that's there. And so with that, um, when you have water and when you have um, the microbes in there, it can break it down and release that into um, the soil profile. Um, and with the soil solution, you're looking at uh, maybe upwards of 60 um, to 70 parts per million silicon is about the max that you see there. But typically um, across soil, and I, again, I should always have my notes with me because I mess up these values, but really you see even lower than that. So even though max saturation of silicic acid in water is up at that 75, usually it's anywhere from 0.2 to about 25 parts per million um, within different soil types on how much silicic acid is available. But that doesn't mean um, that it doesn't have a pool of um, silicon to pull from. And so um, it's going to maintain an equilibrium. And depending on the microbes, the roots that you have, there's, again, a lot of organisms that are competing for that silicic acid pool. Um, so that's going to keep it at kind of that lower, lower levels. Um, I don't know if that really called... So, the silica no, there, right, it, it, depending on the form, it can be very available or it can be tied up just like we see with other nutrients. And there, there's a lot of factors just like we think of with other nutrients that are going to play a role in the availability within a soil profile. And even avail available uh, monosilicic acid in the soil, silicon is, is vital to every living cell on the planet. So not only would the, is the plant, I guess what I'm getting at is competition, right? Microbes are going to be competing for that silicon as well, correct? Or anything, My, um, even earthworms, you know, your, your, your more macro biology versus your microbiology, correct? Correct. Yes. Yep. And that's why um, when we look at levels that are within the ocean are even more depleted and silicon is really, um, one of the elements within marine life um, that is a limiting factor for um, some of those microorganisms as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let, let, we've got a pool of monosilicic acid. It's around the roots. From there, plant, help us understand plant uptake. And now we're going to get in you know, it's traveling from the soil. Now it's moving towards the plant. It's uptake. How does it taken up and, and what are its benefits that uh, in the plants, which I know are several, but we got to, I want to, where I'm kind of going, this is clarifying what we know in the literature and then kind of what's accepted on say a product label. Okay. So with um, plant uptake, we do know of two transporters um, that are not specific for silicon, but have the ability to move silicon through their pores. Um, so these are just, you can think of them like doors or windows in the membrane that allow the silicon to move in. And again, we do um, see it as moving in as silicic acid. Um, and so in the roots, um, the first transporter that um, we kind of think of when we think of the movement of silicon in is the passive transporter, which is an aquaporin. Um, and this, um, even though it's called an aquaporin, it doesn't allow for water to move in, but it does allow for some different solutes, um, silicon being one of them. Um, and so the silicon will move through this pore just down its concentration gradient. So if you have a high amount in the soil, you'll have silicon move into the root system. Then um, we know when it gets to the endodermal barrier, so this is where um, within the roots, it kind of forces these nutrients to move in through the cell um, so it can regulate transport. And for that, the pore that has been studied um, is referred to as LSI2 for low silicon and rice 2. Um, it's also a conserved um, arsenic B-like transporter, which was first identified in uh, bacterial species. 
Um, and so what this transporter is important for is the efflex or um, the movement of arsenic from inside a bacterial cell to the outside. So this allows um, for protection against uh, arsenic toxicity. What's interesting, if you look at silicon and arsenic, where they're sitting on the periodic table, they're neighbors. So they do have a lot of similar um, chemical characteristics. So this is an actual active transporter that can take silicon and move it from areas of low concentration to high concentration. So in species like rice and cannabis, this is how they're able to get such a high concentration of silicon moving up into the plant is they have this active pumping of the silicon in. So even though you might have a low amount in the profile, they're going to pump it to higher concentrations within the internal part of the roots. Then it gets loaded into the xylem and it moves um, similar to a lot of the other nutrients that we think of xylem movement, like our calcium, um, magnesium, all those um, different nutrients. And it will then uh, move and be distributed throughout the plant depending on where some of these other transporters are that allow it to be um, offloaded from the xylem. So again, we see these aquaporins um, in species like rice and our um, grains and grasses, they actually at the node, they believe this is where the trafficking of silicon then, then can be moved to where it needs to go. So again, all of these um, pores or um, doors and windows in the membrane, it's all specific for plants and it's moving it specifically to where the plant needs silicon at that time of growth. So it is a highly regulated system. And this is just looking at um, really the aquaporin is the best described and the best studied. We haven't looked much more into that arsenic be like other than we know the pore has the ability to move it. We can see where it's localized in some of these plant species. Um, and that it, its expression changes with silicon, but others, how it's regulated when it goes into the pore or plasma membrane, when it gets pulled out, we really don't know. And then um, in other species like mammals, they're seeing some of these phosphate transporters have the ability to transport silicon as well. And again, looking at the periodic table, silicon is neighbors with phosphate and arsenic, um, carbon, uh, germanium, um, all those. So they do have similar chemical characteristics, depending on what form it is, um, how it's interacting with other complexes. And so even though we just know about these two transporters and how it's moving, there is a lot more that we need to learn about how it's actually being shuffled around, how it's being used. When it gets into the cell, what is it doing? Is it in the cytoplasm? We do know it can get into the vacuole. Um, with grass species, we know with the specialized silica cells, it moves into the epidermal cells, um, but then it gets deposited between the cell wall and actually the plasma membrane. So there are a lot of these nuances that we know, but the one thing we really don't know, why? Why is it doing this? What is its function there? We have a lot of theories, we have a lot of ideas, but we really, um, it, it's an open-ended question right now. You can really come up with a lot of plausible and what you you feel are logical ideas of what it's doing there. But at this point in time, we really, we don't know what that is. Um, but the important thing is, um, as I'm kind of backtracking, when we're talking about the movement in the xylem and it getting up into the plant tissue and the leaf tissue, we really don't see high concentrations of silicon moving back in through the phloem. So when we think of once it moves up into the leaves, um, a lot of people, um, the literature will say that it's deposited within the leaves and it, it has no effect. It's just going to the end of the transpiration flow um, and it's done there. But again, it's just a theory. Um, whether it's deposited, whether it's still um, available to move throughout the leaf tissue when it gets into there, these are all things that we really don't know yet. Um, but one important thing, um, not just when we're thinking about root absorption, I apologize if I'm jumping too soon into foliar absorption, um, a lot of the liquid sprays that we're putting out um, in orchards um, and in other um, soil type growing environments, we're again applying these to the leaves, which is great for that new growing leaf, but it's not going to be able to move into the new growth after that application. And so these are some things, when we think about silicon absorption and movement, um, 
it's really getting it into the root system, you're going to make sure and ensure it's getting to that new growing system. Whereas foliar applications are great, just like other foliar nutrient applications, but you do need to think about, do I need to continue? How often do I need to apply to continue moving it into the xylem and getting to that new tissue? Yeah, great point. Uh, people struggle with, you know, foliar versus um, soil application. So I think you, you hit upon that there is much like other immobile nutrients, it's really kind of fixed at that time of application. You're going to have to come back seven days or however long we've got that new growth. Um, before we before we move on with, with the second part of that question, which was additional benefits, you, you brought up arsenic in the similarities with silicon. And something you and I have talked about before is heavy metal toxicity in maybe certain growing environments. It seems like that might be more prevalent in maybe organic production where say rice holes are used because rice holes can tend to be, not all, I'm not saying, I'm not accusing any company of having, you know, rice holes with high arsenic, but what is the potential there for the presence of arsenic and how might silicon be beneficial? Yep. So um, a lot of, again, going back to rice, there's a lot of studies in rice because it is a hyperaccumulator. Um, it's kind of the oddball because it does take up so much more than the other grains, um, but you were going to see similar things across all plant species. So in these rice studies, what they saw is when rice is grown in the absence of silicon, it really has a strong draw for silicon. So it will take up nutrients that have similar chemical characteristics, not because it wants to, but because it's trying to fulfill that need for the silicon. So unfortunately, arsenic moves really well through that LSI1 and LSI2 transporter, just like silicon. What's good though, is silicon outcompetes for arsenic. So silicon has a higher binding affinity to move in. So when you put silicon back into these systems, you can still grow on that soil. Um, and usually, honestly, the arsenic levels don't tend to be toxic in these soils, but the plant will bioaccumulate them to levels that would look like you were growing them on an arsenic contaminated soil. So that silicon is really important to outcompete for that. So now when we think about the rice hulls, again, if you are getting rice hulls from an area that was grown in the absence of silicon, you're not getting that silicon concentration in those rice hulls that you might think. So a lot of the literature when we publish and we've worked, I've worked with rice hulls um, with the USDA, uh, Jonathan France, they've done a lot of studies looking at different concentrations but they knew the source of those rice hulls. They were testing how much silicon was present within those rice hulls. So they knew there was um, a significant amount that they were able to supply to that growing system. When you're not um, dealing with a company that maybe is taking that extra step to guarantee a certain percent of uh, silicic acid in those rice hulls, you really don't know what is in that material. Um, it could be high amounts of uh, phosphate, high amounts of arsenic, and high amounts of other nutrients that will move in um, when silicon's not present. And so what happens when you take those rice hulls um, and you supply them to a, another hyperaccumulator, say like cannabis, um, and you don't have that silicon source, what it's going to do is it's again going to hyperaccumulate and draw those heavy metals or those nutrients that have a similar uh, chemical profile as silicon into that system. Um, even though you might see um, neg negligible levels of arsenic, but you're not providing the silicon for the plant to outcompete uh, or the silicon to outcompete those heavy metals in. And so that's where I think we're getting into um, some of the problems that we're seeing. You know, growers, um, suppliers, everybody's wanting to do the right thing, but I we're I think we still need more education um, on how to test for silicon, how to know what it is. So I I don't think um, again that anyone's doing anything um, maliciously. I think it's just 
the education isn't there and the thought process on um, how we should be testing these types of materials and certifying them prior to um, marketing as a uh, media supplement. Yeah, I think you, you really touched on something there. In, and that's one thing I think growers have this first question, well, how much of this do I apply? And how do I know how much to apply? And I think a lot of what, what's the answer to that? I mean, really, I think any, any, anyone out there marketing any type of nutrient or additive, um, we need to have, have that, that answer. Like, well, what are we starting with? And we need to start typically in field soils. We need to start with a soil test. So what's the, is there, is there an acceptable soil test available to farmers? So that way they can get a proper baseline and then walk through the process of, okay, I know where I'm at now. The next question is where do I need to be and how do I get there? And that's a great, again, I'm a cellular molecular biologist, so I'm going to answer this question as best as I can. And this is where, again, um, Brenda Tubana at LSU has been working with coming up and modifying, as well as other researchers around the world, um, these different extraction techniques and how does that correlate? Um, because just like everything, it's going to be an extraction technique. Um, there's probably about three or four different ones that they're all decent depending on what type of soil you have. Um, and then you get a value from that. And really the thing is, if you find an extraction technique that you can see a response as you add more, um, stick to that extraction technique because they're, they're all going to be different. But right now I think it's um, an acetic acid um, extraction that they're using as kind of a baseline. Um, but again, this is just looking at things like a rice um, down in Louisiana and Louisiana soils. So rice, wheat, um, maybe corn, but not all the different commodities or all the different plant species that we might be looking at and how um, that might go about. So it's still, I wouldn't say it's in its infancy because they have been working on it, um, but I haven't seen anything that's really been a, a true you know, this is a recommended soil test. These are the recommended values that we see for our NPKs and all that. But I do think that they're getting really close um, to coming up with those recommendations um, and starting to put um, some of those um, thoughts out into more crops other than just your row crops. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess as long as the, as long as the test is accurate, you get an accurate baseline uh, but it, it can be accurate it could also be incorrect it's an extraction test yes yeah right it's going right. to be as accurate as the test is as yeah. the test method so yeah exactly that's I said. um a lot of uh, there's quite a few different methods out there and again it's just um coming up with a method that works with the soil type that you're dealing with and i think that's really what it's going to come down to but again not an agronomist. So this is just me kind of, as I've been reading the literature and following that side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna have to get Brenda on too and ask some of the there you some go. agronomy questions going. There you go. Well, let's get back to benefits, you know, on, on what's acceptable on, on a label. I think you do some work with, with AFCO, which is what the associate, the American Association for Plant, what, what's the, what is that? Control, yeah. American Association of Plant Food Control Officials. There it is. Right, right, and and they kind of set the definitions of what's acceptable for labels. And in the United States, we have this awesome system where every state has their own system. So one label may be approved and acceptable in one state, but not in another. Which, having done product registration before, is <laughs> it can be a little frustrating at, at times, but I know they mean well, and I know the states mean well, and, um, and we're, I think we're getting better as time goes on. Um, but that being said, so some of the benefits, right, of what's acceptable is I think abiotic stress relief or strength and structure, I think might, might, I might be paraphrasing there. Uh, and a lot of people recognize that adding silicon provides strength and structure, but what does that mean? What, what are we talking about when we're dealing with abiotic stress relief as it relates to silicon in in your plant? 
help us understand that. Okay. So on the um, aspect of APCO, they recognize silicon as a beneficial substance. So in the U.S., silicon is regulated as a plant fertilizer. And so that's why it falls under APCO. Um, if we were be if we would talk about pests um, and disease, which I will after we talk about abiotic, it would have to be registered as a pesticide, and that would go through the EPA. Um, and so, with silicon being a nutrient, um, we're not going to get into the nuts and bolts. Um, but really, so what you'll see on labels is the abiotic um, responses. So we're talking about. Um, anywhere from environmental stress, like temperature. So whether uh, frost, heat, um, we get into things like drought, salinity, um, do, 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 do. and I'm, I had it all in my head in this beautiful order that I wanted to talk about. But um, with the abiotic stress, silicon really has a broad response at mitigating all of this. Um, and really, it's because what silicon is doing is it's balancing out the plant. It's balancing out the nutrients. It's balancing out the water. So your plant can respond in a positive way um, to all of these different um, environmental shifts that cause a similar um, internal, internal imbalance within the plant. Um, so what you'll see on a label, you know, they talk about stronger, um, thicker uh, growth. You don't always see that. I can say the majority, I have never experienced a thicker stem with silicon treatment my entire career yet. Um, and we've worked with a lot of different plant species. And I'm not saying that those studies that have seen an increase didn't. They definitely did because the data is there. I just have not experienced that myself. But what you do see is that the plants do have... Um, almost more tensile strength. And this is because um, the cell walls, um, the matrix has a different organization. And it's not that it's silicon that's being deposited there because that's one thing everybody, oh, silicon deposits and it gives it this really, it's this rigid castle and it's super, super strong. That That isn't the case. Um, silicon's present within the cell wall, but it's really um, what I think we're going to see, and again, this is just, we're inferring at this point because we don't really have a lot of microscopy. We don't have direct science that shows what silicon is doing in the cell wall. Um, but when we think of um, cell walls and those that are stronger than others, it's the cross-linking of these different components in that cell wall matrix. And I do believe that silicon's role, if we look at plants, um, the concentration is similar to those of the metals, um, the uh, essential metals that we have. So I think silicon's playing a role in enzymatic activity and enzymes in that cell wall or the apoplastic area are very important in how um, the cell wall is cross-linked, which gives it strength. Cell walls are also important for water movement and solute availability. And so it can also change the chemical characteristics of that cell wall. And so again, it's um, silicon is really tied strongly to the water status and the water balance throughout the plant. And again, that's going to help when we think of um, reducing the concentrations of contaminants, um, water movement, transpiration movement, getting um, nutrients like calcium to certain areas that might be deficient. Um, so uh, the strength is coming, I think, from that cell wall architect, the matrix being um, different when silicon's present than when it's not, not necessarily that silicon's depositing and you're getting a glass shell within the matrix, but it's definitely doing something um, at um, the matrix level that's going to that. And then the other responses that we're seeing um, with temperature changes with all of, and we see there are changes in gene expression in that, but it's really because when we feed plants silicon, they deal with the stress really well. So they become, um, if we think of it, a person much more laid back. Stress really doesn't bother them. They, they take it on. They're like, okay, it's cold today. We're good. Just going to turn up my internal heat a little bit more and I'm good to go. And it, they don't really um, stress or they don't um, have such a dramatic effect as plants that do not contain silicon. So, so kind of like having a, bit, a more robust immune system in a sense, right? right? Just, just right. more uh, 
vigorous. Maybe that's the right and a faster response time. Yeah. So it, it can change and adjust small changes more quickly. And so those little changes, kind of like the butterfly effect, the little changes at the very beginning have dramatic end effects on the qual. And it's really, it isn't so much yield as part of that, because if you reduce stress, you're going to increase yield. But the quality we're seeing in these plants, when we start putting silicon back, you get to those genetic potential of the plant where we're enhancing the quality characteristics, which then lead to enhancements in yield, especially when you're under those stress conditions. That's, I'm so glad you said that because that really ties into, I've heard that question before, how do, how do you maximize yield? And there were several years ago, I was attending an ag trade show and at the, their keynote speaker, he was the highest yielding corn grower, I think in the country or in the state or something. I think it, might, it must've been nationwide. And they asked him, you know, how do you, how do you achieve highest yield and genetic, full genetic potential? He said that plant can experience a day of stress in its life. That means drip irrigation. You got to really dose that water so that it doesn't experience water stress, uh, so on and so forth. Silicon is, is this one more piece to that puzzle of reaching full genetic potential. And that's right, because any type of stress is going to hamper yield potential. And I think you've explained many reasons why having silicon present at appropriate levels helps. It may not be a silver bullet, right? No. However, it definitely helps. If we were to write this out into an equation, A plus B plus 2N equals highest yield, silicon is in that formula somewhere, or it needs to be. Right. Just like any other balanced nutrition plan. The problem is we know we need to put all these other nutrients in. You know, you need those micronutrients. If they're lacking, you're going to be lacking. But we never think about silicon in that nutrient context. And that that is the key there is that it isn't an end all. But if it isn't there, this is reducing your yield and it's causing you to use some of these more expensive um, fertilizers, the nitrogen and the phosphate to bump and get those yields up because that's what we're seeing a lot is you can reduce the nitrogen, you can reduce the phosphate that you're fertilizing with when silicon's present. And the reason is silicon is taking care of, it's balanced out. And so you don't need to push production with those higher uh, fertilizer inputs that uh, we typically see to get us to those um, projected yields. Mm -hmm. it, do some do some species of plants do they maintain a reserve of silicon in their roots if they need it, or is do they just take it up as on demand? So we did a study in tobacco um, years ago, and th that was our question, um, because when we look at dicot species uh, that take up about a thousand parts per million in their leaves, they actually have really, really high concentration of silicon in the roots. So I did a, a deep water hydroponic study with tomato. We found some of these tomato species had 3% silicon in the root tissue, but only about a thousand parts per million in the leaf. So so 3% is, sorry, um, uh, 30,000 30, parts per million versus 1,000 parts per million. There's my math. So what we thought was, okay, if they have these high concentrations, maybe we can load the roots up, um, stress the plants, and they can use those reserves. So what we did is we took the tobacco, we grew them again in these deep water systems, we grew them under high amounts of silicon, um, and we were using copper stress as our um, stress at the time. And so we then divided them out. What we found is there was not, when we took silicon away, there was no silicon movement. So that concentration of silicon that's present within the roots are in areas that it, it's not at a high enough concentration to move out. Um, so it they're likely tied up within the cell wall, within the vacuoles of cells or within other cell structures that we're not really aware of. Um, the other thing could be that, um, again, without it moving into the central portion 
of the root tissue, um, it will equilibrate out. So even though we loaded it up with high concentrations, when we put it into that silicon-free solution, that silicon could have moved out to equilibrate into that. And so um, we did see slightly more silicon in the plants that were preloaded, but it was significantly lower um, than those plants that had the available silicon at the time of the stress. So this, when, uh, again, these are in those um, uh, thousand parts per million or lower. When we look at things like um, rice or hyperaccumulators, cannabis is probably the same way. The root concentrations are really, really, really low. Um, and they're probably really low because unlike um, these other plants, they don't have as high tight regulation of that arsenic B or that LSI2 transporter. And so all the silicons that's present, they're just continually sucking it up out of the system. So I would guess with those type of plants also, you're not going to have a root reserve of the silicic acid. And that's why we really do see um, the responses that if the silicic acid is present at the time of stress, um, we see that positive response. So it's it has to be there when the stress is present. It isn't something that you can come back and fix um, after the fact. Gotcha. I want to touch upon products a little bit. You've evaluated, without naming any, but you've evaluated many silicon products out there at the quite a few. I think a lot of people, a lot of companies have approached you to, to evaluate their product. Regarding labels, again, there's there's uh, differences between states. I think we're now, as, as time goes on, I think it's getting better from my experience, right? And I think California kind of leads the way in this in a good way. Uh, I think that what they're looking for now or what they accept is soluble silicon Granted, maybe the now without getting into the analysis of how that's derived, right? Because that that could change things. But there's so much variation on labels, at least there historically there has been, and also derivative statements. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked from people, well, this is potassium silicate or calcium silicate or monosilicic acid or orthosilicic acid. That creates so much confusion with end users. They don't know. That's the question I get the most. Well, what what do I have? Is this better? I hear this is better. Why is it better? Well, my goodness, we're, we really need to break it down to its its simplest component. Can you help? Can you help shed some some light on that and what users need to look for to understand those labels? Yep, um, I can. So with the labels, really, what you want to do is look at percent SI. So right now in the U.S., the percent value has to be of the silicic acid. Prior to, so maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, they were using total silicon as that value. Um, they no longer do. So when we see percent SI or a percent of some kind of silicon form on a label, that is referring to the silicic acid fraction. Whether that silicic acid is coming from calcium silicate, rice hulls, an amorphous form, um, well, last night, any type of these products, um, it, it doesn't really matter because that's putting everybody on the same playing field. So it's telling you how much monosilicic acid is in that product based on the extraction test. So um, not all states require it to be percent SI. Some will allow them to put percent SiO2 and percent um, silicic acid, which is um, SI with OH4 or H4SiO4. All that's telling you, um, again, you want to make sure that you are looking at every product with that percent SI. So when we think of SI to SiO2, um, that's about two times higher. Um, if they're putting percent silicic acid, that's about three and a quarter to three and a half times higher than percent SI. So they can use the, that to kind of bump their SI numbers. Um, but really, you're looking for that percent SI and comparing that across all of the products is going to tell you apples to apples what that product has the ability to do. Um, it gets a little tricky when we think about solids versus liquids because the solid percent SI is going to give you um, kind of what's going to be available over a long range. So it's not all available 
at once because it has to break down to release that salicylic acid in. When we look at liquids, however, it is what is available at that time. And so with the liquids, um, if you're doing um, like a beta bucket system where you're fertilizing and it's going to waste, um, you want to make sure that um, all that silicon right there is going to move out of the system because it's in the soluble form. So it's going to move out with the waste. It's not going to um, bind to whatever solid substrate you might have in those type of systems. Um, but that percent SI is probably is the key um, to starting to compare these products to one another because whether it's coming from rice hulls, whether it's coming from lacinite calcium silicate products, um, potassium silicate, calcium silicate, um, amorphous silica, or simply they'll say it's coming from silicic acid. Well, silicic, it's all, it does get confusing. I get confused all the time. And really, I'm just looking for what that percent SI says. And that's yeah, how volcanic I- Volcanic ash or ancient right. seabed yep. or- Correct. Any, really sir. need the silicon levels. So if, if, if for some reason there is a label out there and it lists- uh, percent monosilicic acid, let's say it's SIOH4 on there, really somebody looking at that, let's say it says four, it's 4%, four like, wow. And they compare it to another one that has percent SI and it's one, essentially they're similar in their. They're pretty similar, right. And the other thing is, um, when, and I, I'm probably jumping on this one too, when we think about application rates, 1% SI is again, 10,000 parts per million, I usually recommend adding it at 30 to 60 parts per million. Because again, if we think about solubility in a soil system, what these plants have evolved to be able to accumulate at any given time is within that point to, um, to or I'm sorry, yeah, point two to 25 parts per million silicon. Um, in our research um, in the lab, we usually add in silicon at a high end of two millimolar, which is right at about that 60 parts per million silicon. So putting in any more than that um, is really saturating the system. So if you're thinking about um, what's better, a, a 1% or a 5% SI, well, one, you're just gonna be diluting a lot more. So really um, that's where um, a 0.2% silicon product is a good silicon product. You're going to get what you need. You're just going to have to add it at a higher rate than you would a 1% or a 10% and so on. So Right, it, and compare the application cost. Correct. Okay, well, what correct. is it? So what if it's four times higher? Is it four times less? Or, you know, the cost, the cost per finished gallon of solution, what is it? Right, right, yep. Yeah. So many products out there, I noticed it, it, some of the drawbacks to some silicon products, high pH. So you have to adjust pH. I don't know if that tends to be a challenge or not, kind of caustic, but gelling seems to be a problem. Is that because of the solubility of silicon? Is, is, is it high pH? Is it is it trying to achieve that amorphous stature? You mentioned kind of the, the jelly earlier with amorphous so silicon. This, this was um, really seen with uh, the potassium silicates, not that it's just a potassium silicate issue, um, but it, potassium silicates were probably the most sold liquid here in the U.S. Um, and so what really is happening as the pH, so it is a high pH to keep the silicic acid in solution, um, when it comes down and gets within that pH of six, the silicon, silicon loves to interact with itself. So at that pH of six, it will start interacting and polymerizing with itself. And if you sit at that pH six for too long, that's when you get the gel, that's when you get the issue. And so um, with those types of products, they do encourage if you're going to bring it down, adjust the pH either before you add other nutrients um, or make sure when you're adjusting that pH, it's a quick drop and then bringing it a quick drop past that pH of six, um, because that's really, that's the sweet spot where really, really bad things happen. Um, I can say that I've worked with potassium silicate um, I've added it to my fertilizer solution with the complete with the fertilizers already diluted out. It kind of clouds up because of the high pH. I drop the pH and it goes into solution. I have not had any problems um, just with how I've ran them, but that's where they always say a jar test. Always perform a jar test before um, you fill up that big tank full of this uh, solution just in case something were to happen. Um, but 
that's where, you know, the formulations, because everything um, where I talk about silicon and silicic acid, many of these products, there's a lot more than just the silicon. So you're not just seeing the silicon benefits, but you're seeing the benefits from the other additives that are present within there. And so that's a, that's another thing to think about um, when you're comparing these products. Not It isn't always just silicon. So there are some other um, formulations and other benefits with certain formulations over others that might um, have a better um, response in your growing system. Yeah. In the research, have, have you done any work with, uh, we, you know, we talked about monosilicic acid in some of the research papers I reviewed and in some products out there, you're starting to see nanotechnology and nanostructured silica, which um, is SiO2, but I, the way I understand it is those molecules have side chains because like you said, silicon likes to, it, it sounds like it's social. So it likes to it intermingle it with itself. So you've got, you have these, these structures and what makes it nano is the, the side branches because it kind of looks like a bunch of grapes underneath the microscope. The, the um, What's the name for the um, cells in the, in the plant? Once silicon is deposited into the cells, you get the phytoliths. Is that what it is? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So the, the once silicon is in, is a biosilification. That's so much fun to say. Um, so nanostructured silicon, they have these side chains and the branches are, I think, less than 100 nanometers, which a nanometer is what, a billionth of a meter. So very, very, very small. Have you done any work with nanostructured silica? It seems like it might be something that's kind of up and coming and gaining traction. I haven't. I would love to. Um, what's interesting is the term nano uh, silicon or nano silica is widespread. So kind of like biochar, um, we're starting to see uh, there are a lot of products that are claiming a nano silica product. Rice hulls actually can fall under nano silica. Um, and so it is with these products, um, whether they're synthesized in lab or they're from naturally derived phytoliths, they do have um, kind of a different characteristic than we see um, with silicon in uh, from a parent material in a soil profile. But again, it they do break down, they do release. Um, I haven't worked with them yet. I would love to. Um, I'm I kind of extended right now with this time, but they would move, they do move differently in a plant system. And so we are seeing that a lot of these are foliar applied and they do see that some of these are moving in through the stomata and getting into the apoplastic area where they could, um, the outer part of that shell could be releasing the silicic acid, um, but they could also um, with silicon, it opens up all these binding sites. So when you think of clay material in a soil profile, it has all of these sites for cations to bind to and uh, different um, nutrients. We don't know what type of proteins or enzymes. We do know um, that uh, in the lab, so in cellular and molecular biology, biology, we use silica columns when we purify DNA so or RNA. So nucleic acid does bind to silica and so there, there's a lot of potential for what these particles might be doing when they get into the cell. It's likely going to be different than what we see with silicic acid moving. Um, but again, um, we don't know once silicon is getting into the cell wall matrix, if it's setting up its own kind of amorphous little substructures within the environment. Again, this is what I said. Silicon, we know so little about it and there's so many. But from the nanotechnology side, they are seeing benefits to it. They're seeing benefits um, in germination, in tomato, um, in, in other things. So even though we don't understand the technology yet, there does seem to be a role and a beneficial role, but it, it is separate from what we see with the silicic acid. Um, but I do want to add a caveat to that. Again, not all silicon nanostructures are the same. So they do see a, it really comes down to um, the size um, and how it's probably formed that play a role in whether or not you're going to see a benefit from it. So not all nanoparticles are going to show you the benefits that are in the literature. And you really need to understand um, the size profiles and 
what the data is with that particular product, what have they seen with their product, not what have other people seen with nano um, material. And that's going to be a much stronger case for the beneficial response you'll see if you incorporate those types of material in your growing system. Yeah, thanks for expanding upon that. And yeah, I, I, I was privileged to have worked with some nanotechnology in the past and nanostructured silica. And anecdotally, saw some saw some interesting things, although it tended to be in combination with other technology. So it was that really the question became, how much is that contributing? I believe it was contributing, but I couldn't really explain how and to what extent. And so I think there, there's something there, but this this just drives home the data. Got to have some. Got to have some data, and it needs to be not. Is it confounded or compounded? It needs to be separated. You got to make sure you have the right treatment, so that way you're not, you know, inter, uh, interacting with other factors. Um, so I, I'm I'm excited about that because I'm always excited about new technology and 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 how it can help growers become better at, at what they do and push the push the market forward, make healthier plants be able to either produce more plants, they like ornamental production, we have more plants, maybe they last longer for the consumer. Uh, maybe one point to make is a lot of what we've discussed here today regarding silica, it, it applies to whether the plants are grown outdoors, in the soil, soilless media, greenhouse, whether it's corn, cannabis, petunias, sunflowers, it's applicable to, to all crops. So if you're growing in greenhouse agriculture and you're asking yourself, is silicon beneficial to me? Yes. The answer is? Yes, even more yes. so. You're probably yeah. lacking quite a bit. Right, right. And I'll, I've said this many times, I'll say it again. The only thing missing from soilless media is the soil and people look at me kind of funny and like, well, duh. And <laughs> well, for, and the reasoning behind that is the more we discover about soil, it's not just an anchor for plants and nutrients. It's so much more than that. Uh, we've got to add that back into soilless media. Yep. I think Jonathan, Jonathan France always said, you know, from the day that they took the soil out of the media, they've been trying to figure out how to put it back. <laughs> right. so yeah. What a great guy too. I, I need to reach out to him. I haven't seen him for years. He was always, he was always so welcoming. Just a, just an all around good dude. Yeah. He's in Iowa now, isn't he? What's that? He's in Iowa now. Is, is that right? Yep. Yeah. That's what I thought. Okay. Anyway, we kind of went off track there a little right. bit, but sidebar. <laughs> well, hey, when when somebody like that pops up, give them give them kudos where where it's due. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground today, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Not literally, figuratively. Anyway, um, is there is there anything else you want? Any other points you you want to make? Um, not at this time, but really, you know, again, trying to get this education out and thinking of silicon as a nutrient. Silicon is a nutrient and it is a very important nutrient for all plants. And so just understanding um, if your system is lacking, uh, how to get it back in there and what the best, you know, how how to work it in again to increase that quality. Um, and the increase in quality is going to help you with um, increasing yield or getting you to where you want to be um, with the plants that you're growing. Awesome. I couldn't agree more. Speaking of education, and I know I've asked you this before, so I'm going to put you on the spot again. Are, where, where can people, can they, are you active on social media, on LinkedIn, or maybe uh, just where can people find the papers that you've contributed to, you have, you have many peer reviewed papers or maybe suggest some others. Well, um, so I do have a LinkedIn profile. Um, you can email directly. Um, my email address is Zellners RS. So Z E L L N E R S at outlook.com. Um, and I can, you know, if you have specific questions, um, we can start a conversation that way, but LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. Um, to find me, just look for Wendy Zellner. Um, I'm still an adjunct um, and an associate uh, research associate professor with the University of Toledo. 
Uh, so if you wander on their website, you might also um, find my contact information there as well. Um, and so that email is still up and running. Um, but uh, just or reach out to Johan, you you know, and he can. Yeah, reach out to me. I'll tell you how to find her. Right. Right. Um, so um, those are I'm not as active as I'd like to be just very busy with other things. But um, I do understood. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, having a LinkedIn profile is, is a great way to start. I, I don't have a website up yet. And so when I when I list what's your website, I just direct them to my LinkedIn profile. And that may I may keep it that way. I don't know. There's so much great information there and you can post, you can, I think they even have a, uh, a contributor section now where you can write articles and post them there. So I might just leave that as my, my go-to resource for people. Just go to my LinkedIn profile. So you got that going. Way. <laughs> right. Right. Well, good. Well, as always, wonderful to visit with you and thank you for sharing your, your knowledge and the current, status of, of silicon is based on your experience and thank you for your contributions and I'm sure we'll be chatting again and if you'll just hold tight i'll uh, we'll sign off and once again right. dr wendy zellner thank you so much thank you all right <laughs>